0: Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. When was the last time someone ignored you? (laughs) It's like the fellow who hates it when his wife says, are you even listening to me? And the husband says, that's just a random way to start a conversation. Why would you do that? How about you? When was the last time someone ignored you? Do you remember who it was? Don't point in church. That's rude, even if it might be true. One of the reasons I love reading the scriptures is you'll not find someone who is honestly and sincerely seeking God who is also ignored by God. You just won't find it. You'll never find an instance where someone who is honestly seeking God is also ignored by God. Search the Bible and look for the honest person that's spurned by heaven and you won't find him or her. Flip the pages, examine the scriptures. Where in the Bible did God turn away a genuine heart? It simply doesn't happen. Joseph was in prison in the Old Testament. And God did not ignore him there. Moses had his reservations about serving him and was left wandering in a desert for a good portion of his life. And God never ignored him. Job had his struggles. You think you're living in chaos. Read the book of Job. Actually, just read the first two chapters of Job. He had his struggles. And yet there was silence from God, perhaps for a season. There was never a moment where God overlooked him. God never turns away an honest seeker. We come to this Old Testament prophet named Habakkuk. Everyone say that word, that name, ready, begin, Habakkuk. If I have to say it all day, so do you. Um, And Habakkuk gives these tough questions to God. And he gave them right to God. Tough questions don't stump God, and he actually invites them, and that's what Habakkuk did. He probed and asked the tough questions of God, and what we will find today is God does not ignore him. Habakkuk was a prophet that prophesied as the southern kingdom of Judah faced invasion by the Babylonians, and as the wickedness of his own people was getting out of hand. So he's facing two things. Number one, he is part of this region that's known as uh, Southern Judah, and they are to be followers of God, and yet their lifestyle and what they believe don't match up. So they believe in God Almighty and yet their lifestyle is full of wickedness getting away from them. Secondly, uh, the other thing that Habakkuk is facing is that there is an enemy encroaching upon them. And so as Habakkuk saw the wickedness of both his own people and the wickedness of those invading the land, he starts asking God some really difficult questions. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. We'll read a few of these verses by way of introduction. Habakkuk says this, or the the book says this, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. He says this, verse two, O Lord, how long? Everyone say how long? How long? Now say it like you've been waiting. Say it again. How long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear? Or Or cry to you violence? and you won't save. Uh, In other words, are you ignoring me? Verse three, why do you make me see iniquity or sin? Why do you idly look at wrong? You ever just think that God is idly standing by in your life, in your scenario, in your chaos? Destruction and violence are before me strife and contention Arise. In other words, why do I have to watch evil go around all around me? Why don't you do anything? Isn't that what you're supposed to do? You're God. He continues in verse 4. So the law is paralyzed. Look at the imagery here. Habakkuk is getting poetic. The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. In other words, the law doesn't matter anymore. You ever feel like that? The law doesn't matter anymore? That the law is paralyzed? That justice never goes forth? There's more of them than there are of us? Maybe you felt this that way after last week. There's no such thing as justice? And then he goes on. Habakkuk expresses shock that What what God ends up doing is because of their sin, God uses the enemy's invasion as punishment for their sin. So the salt on the wound is they're already uh, in their own sin, but now God uses the enemy to teach them a lesson. Look at verse 12 as he continues his outcry against God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my holy one? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You are you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent? When the wicked swallows up the man, more righteous than he? In other words, you you can't be serious. You're condoning this kind of evil. Why don't you do something about this? Why are you silent right now? He goes on in verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler he goes on in verse 15 he brings all of them up with a hook he drags them out with his net he gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad Habakkuk is saying you're treating men and women like fish in the ocean they're swimming and they don't have direction and they're swimming but they're not get getting anywhere He goes on in verse 16, though he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich, is he then to keep in emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? In other words, are you just gonna let this go on and on and on? How many of you are impressed by Habakkuk's boldness? And yet, if you and I were honest we've probably had moments in our life where we want to have a similar conversation with God. God, why? Why does it feel like there's more of them than there are of us? Why does it feel like justice just goes perverted? Why does it feel like the enemy gets to rejoice while the righteous suffer? Why, 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 why? God's response is this beautiful uh, set of reminders for us, and it's three reminders in the middle of your chaos, because while we don't perhaps have the Babylonians knocking on our door, we, uh, we have measures of chaos we live in, don't we? We have chaos in our, uh, in our community. We have chaos in our nation. We have chaos uh, out there, and if we're being honest, we have chaos in here, right? It's one thing to identify the chaos in the nation or the chaos in the community and say, you're right, Daniel, they sure are screwed up. <laughs> but when we look in the mirror and we start evaluating or taking inventory in our own life, and you'll recognize with me that perhaps our own hearts are in chaos. And there's not peace like there could be, and there's not peace like there should be. And so God gives Habakkuk. Here's the beautiful thing. God never interrupts Habakkuk. Dang, it's such a beautiful display of God's patience and His love and His grace for us. He doesn't interrupt Habakkuk. But as we read through the narrative of these brief three chapters, you'll notice that God has a place to respond. And in doing so, he gives them three reminders. The first is found in chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read a few verses. It says this. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is what Habakkuk has said. I've said my piece, and now I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait. Verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may re- So he may run who reads it. Verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not leave. It will not lie, I should say. If it seems slow, wait for it. For it will surely come. It will not delay. Some of you, that's the only verse you need today. You're in a position where you're asking God and you're asking God for clarity. You're asking God for peace. You're asking him for Your chaos to be resolved, and he says to you, boy, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. But look at verse four, he says this. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Read that last portion where it says, but the righteous with me together, ready, begin. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Reminder number one is this, followers of Jesus Christ are called to live by faith in the middle of their chaos. We are called to live by faith. You see, in this world, we have choices to make, and there is a stark difference between living by faith and living on our own. And here's the thing that about living on our own, we're not qualified to give ourselves direction we need in the middle of our chaos. We're just not qualified. Isaiah says it this way, another Old Testament prophet. He says this, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. That polluted garment, some theologians believe that that is the garment that they would use to clean up those who are suffering from leprosy. So those uh, lepers that would have sores and, uh, all over their body because of the disease of leprosy and as they would take the rags and they would clean the bodies and, and that rag would now house the leprous disease, Isaiah says all of our righteous deeds are like this rag that we just sopped up all this leprosy with. In other words, we're not qualified to give our own direction. But here's the beautiful, beautiful news. Titus says this, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to whose mercy? His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians, for God made Christ who never sinned to be offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. The King James says that we might become the very righteousness of God. We stand righteous and because of what he has done, not because of what we have done. This is what baptism symbolizes. We get in that water and it symbolizes our life before Christ, and we go under, and then we come out, and it now represents our life with Christ. It's not anything that we did. There's nothing we could ever do on the cosmic stales of good and evil that would outweigh our bad. In fact, all of the righteousness that we could ever earn, all of the righteousness, all the things we think we could do, would be compared to this rag that we would clean up leprosy with. It's diseased from the very beginning. And in any way that we have a scale that tips us in one way or another, we're always going to fall short of the glory of God. But He saved us according to His mercy that we might become the righteousness of God. Now here's the thing. As followers of Jesus Christ, what happened here in the baptism, baptism pool is not the end of our journey with Christ. It's the beginning. From this day forward, we now walk with new purpose, with uh, new values, new ethics, new morals. And as time goes on, we will begin to thirst and pursue righteousness. Matthew says it this way. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So this morning I have a question, how's your appetite? How's your appetite? Because when... You are a follower of Jesus Christ, a mark of being a follower of Jesus Christ is that you will hunger and thirst for righteousness, and then you will be filled. That word filled is this beautiful uh, word in the Greek that simply means to satisfy the soul. When you pursue hunger, or when you pursue righteousness, when you hunger for righteousness, and thirst for it, you'll be satisfied in your soul. And as you grow as followers of Jesus Christ, we begin to thirst and pursue righteousness. You know why your soul's never satisfied? It's because you're eating junk food. It's true. If you hunger and thirst for unrighteousness, you will always hunger and thirst. There's this meme out there that says, like, a bag of potato chips is like 14 chips, right? Or a serving for a bag of potato chips is not a serving size. Daniel, no, a bag of potato chips is not a serving size. It's like 14 chips. And there's a meme that's out there that says, 14 chips? I'm eating 14 chips trying to decide if I still want the chips. (laughs) As you can tell. If you hunger and thirst for unrighteousness, you will always hunger and thirst. You just always will. So um, if you hunger and thirst for selfish things in your life and you pursue that and you hunger for it, whether it's something that you buy or something you experience or something you look at, you will always and hunger and thirst for more. I'm taking uh, classes, some, some extra training right now in the area of pastoral counseling. Um, our elders are gracious and kind enough to give me some time and the resources to do so. And as I'm learning about the human brain, there are some addictions that we have that simply do not end because the cycle of addiction just wants you to crave more and more and more. So as a follower of Jesus Christ, we have to purify our hearts, purify our minds, and hunger and thirst for righteousness, and then your soul will be satisfied. It's a beautiful promise. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we pursue, we hunger after righteousness, and as we do, there will become a recognition in your chaos. Uh, There will uh, be this temptation to ease up on your faith, to... Uh, to take it easy. And as you go through chaos, the reminder from God Almighty to Habakkuk and to us is this, the righteous shall live by his faith. You don't live according to what you can see. You can't live according to what you can make sense of because in the middle of your chaos, nothing makes sense. In the middle of your chaos, you can't see very far. So in those moments, you must live by faith. And the more that you hunger and thirst after righteousness, the larger and stronger and deeper your faith grows so that in the middle of your chaos, you still live by faith. Chaos in our lives doesn't mean the enemy has defeated. It just means the enemy has been delayed. And it means victory is just around the corner as we live by faith. Reminder number two, chaos provides us the opportunity to know God deeper than during times of ease. Habakkuk 2 and verse 12 says this, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely, uh, labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? In other words, he's saying uh, they work so hard, but everything is in vain. Meanwhile, verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Aren't you glad for the promise that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God? This promise is comprehensive. The water is covering the sea. I want you to picture it. It gives us the image of God's redemptive work covering every area of our lives. Here's something fun to learn today: uh, knowledge is the Hebrew word for yada. You know how when someone's just blabbling on and on and on, and you say yada 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 yada, we get that expression from the root word, which is knowledge, because uh, they're saying they're just they think they're giving us knowledge, but in essence, it's just yada, 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 yada. The knowledge, though, is a deeper word than we're used to understanding. The knowledge here spoken by the prophet is not so much information, because wouldn't you agree that we have lots of information we have access to? If you type the word God into Google, you'll find 5.1 trillion results. There is not a lack of information... We don't suffer from a lack of information. We suffer from a lack of knowledge. Those are two different things. Gaining information about God and gaining or knowing God are two different things. You may know about God, but do you know him? The difference between knowing about someone and knowing them. Um, for instance, you can, um, you can get information about someone um, and find out what they look like. Knowing someone is knowing why they tear up when a certain song plays on the radio. Information about someone is knowing they like Christmas. Knowing them is knowing why the one ornament has to go in the perfect spot. You see the difference? And I, 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 I fear that in our culture, where we have access to so much information, we have information about God we know God. We know that uh, he's part of the Trinity. We know that He is God the Father, God the Son, and the other one. We know some things about God, right? And we kind of paint this picture of things we know about God, but I'm telling you there's a difference between knowing about God and then knowing him. Do you know him? Here's the difficult news. Do you know what ends up Providing the perfect crucible and forming a deeper knowledge of God? Do you know what ends up proving to be the perfect learning environment to know God more and more? It's your chaos. It's your chaos. Look at that verse again, verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The verses prior to it, he, divide, he, he described all of this chaos, all of this craziness. Psalms 46, we always quote, or you see it on a framed picture, and we'll see that framed picture of um, uh, the verse, and it's always set by this serene a uh, picture of maybe uh, water that's still, or maybe an ocean that's not moving, and it'll say, be still and know I am God. And we look at that picture and we think, yeah, that's, that's it. What would be more accurate would be like a garbage dumpster rolling down a river while on fire, uh, a lightning bolt striking it, a sandstorm one way and a windstorm the other way and rain from up top. And then it says, be still and know I am God. Because if you read the rest of Psalms 46 leading up to that verse, it's pure pandemonium. Kingdoms are fighting each other. People are at war with each other. And in the middle of that chaos, the psalmist says, now's the time to be still and know God. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's a, there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Um, how many of you read the Chronicles of Narnia books when you were a young child? How many of you have seen the movies? Chronicle of Narnia series are the novels authored by C.S. Lewis, published in the early 50s, and As you read through them, the character Aslan is a lion, and he proves to be an allegory for Jesus Christ. And there's an exchange between Lucy and Aslan in the Prince Caspian book, and this is what ends up happening. Aslan says this, welcome child. And Lucy responds, Aslan, you're getting bigger. You're bigger. And Aslan responds, that's because you're older, little one. And she says, not because you are. And Aslan says, I am not. But every year you grow, you find me bigger. God's always going to be massive and big. But every year you grow, God gets bigger and bigger. Every bit of chaos that you begin to trust Him in, God gets bigger and bigger and more deep. So reminders during our chaos, what do we do? Well, uh, we should live by faith. Secondly, we should be reminded that this time of chaos provides us the opportunity to know God deeper than during times of ease. As we get to know God, he becomes bigger and bigger and shows up repeatedly, and we grow deeper and deeper in our understanding and our knowledge of him. He's always been that big, but in those moments, we get to see him for who he is that big. This is what happens in the middle of your chaos. Your knowledge of who God is and his presence deepens like it simply cannot do during times of ease. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament, coat of many colors, and he goes to a picnic? My bad, no, he goes to a prison, doesn't he? That's where his knowledge grows. It's not when times were easy. It was in the middle of the pit when his brothers had betrayed him. It's on the way to jail when, uh, when Potiphar's wife turns him in for a crime he didn't commit. It's when he's standing there in jail waiting for the baker to tell Potiphar what ended up happening and the word never gets. It's all during those moments of chaos, those moments of difficulty that his knowledge of who God is grows. Moses didn't learn who God is in Pharaoh's palatial kingdom. He learned it in the wilderness. David didn't go on a safari to learn who God was. He went on the run. And Habakkuk learned who God is when judgment was coming and he was about to be in the hands of his enemy. The problem with us is that we want to have power and influence, Joseph had, without going through difficulty and imprisonment. We want to be freed from our captivity like Moses without ever going through the wilderness. We want the burning bush moment with God like Moses had, but we want it from the ease and the comfort of our recliner, not in the dry wilderness. We want to experience God as the God who would lead us beside still waters, but we, wanna, we don't want to go out alone into the fields where the waters are in the first place. So if you're going through chaos, if you're feeling alone, if you feel abandoned, if you feel hopeless, don't give up. Remember, if you are honestly seeking him, you will not be ignored. You might have to wait. But he's there. He's there. Reminder number one, followers of Jesus are called to live by faith in the middle of their chaos. Reminder two, chaos provides us the opportunity to know God deeper than during times of ease. It doesn't mean he's abandoned us. It means he's right next to us, which means we have hope. Reminder number three is this. Chaos teaches us that who remains is often more significant than what was lost. Chaos teaches us that who remains is often more significant than what was lost. We pick it up in chapter 3 of Habakkuk in verse 17. It says this, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the Fields yield no food. The flocks be cut off from their fold and there will be no herd in the stalls. If you read that verse, just leave that verse up, John, verse 17. If you read that verse and you're like me, you said, what? What does that mean? Well, the fig was the primary staple for food, symbolic of wealth and prosperity. So in other words, when it says, then the fig tree should not blossom, it says, okay, so when the fridge is empty... And so is the grocery store. The fruit of the vine is the wine for feasts and festivals and celebration. It's a symbolism for joy. So along with the empty refrigerator, there's nothing to celebrate. The olive oil was pressed three times. It was used for anointing in the temple for lamps and light and for medicinal purposes, also symbolic for God's blessing. So along with the empty fridge for us and uh, no fruit on the vine uh, was it no fruit on the vines uh, which means uh, there was no, nothing to celebrate the olive oil represents there's no uh, restoration coming there's no medicinal purposes there's no uh, medicine available Fee, fields yield no food the grain for bread considered to be a gift from God uh, this basically means there's no food coming anymore the truckers aren't able to transport anything because there's nothing to transport It says flocks are cut off. That means the animals have scattered to the wild. There's nothing to hunt. There's no herds in the stalls. That means there's no meat for food and no animals for sacrifice. When chaos comes and knocks on your door, when all of these things happen, look at verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my rock he makes my feet like the deer's he makes me tread on high places In other words this signifies a change of direction Habakkuk moves from describing devastation to a declaration of joy and a, from a desolation to joy The natural reaction of human beings is uh, when there's chaos is panic depression And the reaction only found in our faith is joy, no matter the chaos we find as followers. He says, I will rejoice. I will take joy. In other words, it's decisive. It's assertive. Your joy is a decision that you make. As a follower of Jesus Christ, joy is a decision we make to consider the circumstances, yet uh, remember our position. We consider the circumstances that are around us, and we look at the the economic landscape. We look at the political landscape. We look at our own relational landscape in our life, and we look at everything that might be circumstantially around us, and yet positionally we say, I take joy in the God of my salvation because my faith is here. Look at this. It's not here. And if your faith is circumstantial, so will your walk be circumstantial. So will your walk with Jesus be circumstantial. And as long as everything's going up, your faith is going great. And then when the market turns or the promotion doesn't come through or something else circumstantial happens, so does your faith. And Habakkuk is saying, I'm going to take joy in the Lord. It's not a form of self-help or mind over matter. It is recognizing that God is working in the midst of, of us, even though we cannot see it. As I was reading a few weeks ago in preparation, I came across this quote that goes unknown. Joy is the flag that is flown from the citadel of the heart when the king is in residence. Joy is a gift from God. Chaos teaches us that who remains is often more significant than what was lost. It doesn't, chaos doesn't rob us of our happiness. It provides us the ground in which we plant our flag of joy. So, this is how we will reflect and respond with this statement. And for some of you, you may want to write this down. It says this. In the middle of my chaos, I will live by faith, knowing his glory will fill the earth and I will worship God joyfully. In the middle of my chaos, I will live by faith, knowing his glory will fill the earth, and I will worship God joyfully. Joseph lost his family, his coat of many colors, Lost his freedom, lost his future, but the just shall live by his faith. And as he kept his faith centered on God, he got to know God deeper and deeper, and all, he lost a lot of things in his life. He never lost God, and his family was restored, his freedom was restored, authority was given, and his lineage was secured. Moses lost the palace he lost royalty he ended up in the wilderness but the just shall live by faith and he got to know deeper and he know and he got to know God deeper when he wasn't in the kingdom of of Egypt's pharaoh but when he was in the wilderness separated from everyone where he had to rely on God and he saw the exodus of God's people and he lost some things on the way but in the way there, he also gained the very presence of God. Job had his struggles. He lost everything. He lost his wife, his kids, his family, his livelihood, his business, his wealth, but the just shall live by his faith. And through the book of Job, we see him getting to know God deeper and deeper through honest questions, through sincere moments. And God never forgot him. And if you get to the end of the book of Job, you see that everything was restored to him that was lost. Habakkuk, Dear Habakkuk, he's angry. He's got questions. He doesn't understand why the wickedness of Israel has gotten out of control. He doesn't understand why the enemy gets to be the one to punish Israel. And he gets this word from the Lord that simply says, the just shall live by faith. And by the time he gets through his questions, by the time he gets through his loneliness, by the end of chapter 3, he is singing a hymn of praise. Not because the circumstances have changed but because he has gotten to know God deeper and as you get to know God deeper you will recognize the moments of chaos is where our faith grows or fails now here is uh, here's the issue with biblical examples like this we've already read the end of their story so Intellectually, when we see that Joseph is in the pit, you know what we tell ourselves? (laughs) Oh, but he gets out. And when he goes to prison, we go, oh, yeah, but he gets out. And when Potiphar's wife throws him in jail, he goes, oh, no, 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 he's going to be second in command. All through the story, we tell ourselves, because we know the end of the story. When we read Moses, and Moses was on the run because he killed a Hebrew, or he killed an Egyptian for abusing a, a, a Hebrew. And he runs, and he leaves the palace. He leaves the security of Egypt, the security of Pharaoh. And what we tell ourselves is, yeah, yeah, it's fine, bro. There's this burning bush coming, and it's going to blow your mind. And he gets scared, and he gets nervous, and the burning bush is there. And he's like, God, what do I, I don't even know what to say. You see Aaron? Aaron's the one who talks all the time. He's always the one getting in trouble in synagogue. You should have him do it. They didn't have synagogue back then, by the way. And we're like, oh, you're going to have this moment where you go face to face with Pharaoh, bro. It's like six chapters later. Just hang in there, Moses. You got this. And we get to Moses, and he's going through the seven, the plagues. And what messes us up is we just know how the story ends, and he's going to be there, and he's going to put the thing, and the water's going to, and they're going to, and the water's going to. Like we know, we've seen Prince of Egypt. We know how this ends. We get to job and in the first chapter of job scripture just beats us up man his wife and his family and and the devil and god are having this conversation i don't know how to make sense of that and then they choose job that's not very fair and you know what we tell ourselves yeah but dude you're gonna get another wife you're gonna get more kids you're gonna have more cattle than you ever and what messes us up is we know the end of the story now here's the here's the weirdest way our faith works. We know the end of the story in scripture. And yet what happens in our chaos? What what do you tell yourself during your chaos? It's over. I can't I can't do this anymore. Lord, you're going to have to fix this right now because it's over. What well, God is asking us to recognize is this, this. The just shall live by faith. Now, we have the privilege of Scripture. So go back and remind yourselves of these stories of people and recognize that um, their prayers were not answered by the next time they check social media. Oftentimes, their prayers were answered over decades and decades and decades. The just shall live by faith recognize this that the chaos just might be the best moment for you to dig deeper in your faith and it's a oh so this is what prayers for i have to wait on him i i literally have to pray this prayer go on with my day and trust him that he will work on it while i'm not able to yep That's faith. The other reminder, the third reminder, is that this chaos, this chaos will prove to you that it's way more significant who remains than what you might have lost. We invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.